Pastor. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to look at what I think is one of the most fascinating parts of the, of the Easter story. It's found in the book of Matthew, the last two chapters. If you brought a Bible, hope you did, go to Matthew chapter 27 or 28, or it will be on the screen to help us here in just a moment. By the way, while you're turning, we had about 10 of our folks at what is called Eight Days of Hope this last week, helping to renovate homes down on the coast in Louisiana after the hurricane. And in eight days, they renovated 150 homes totally. Amazing story. Not just those 10 people. They <laughs> there were about 1,200 people who gathered for that. So after the body of Jesus was taken down from the cross, it was put in a tomb and a large stone was rolled across the entrance. But the enemies of Jesus remembered his statement that he was going to rise again and they wanted that tomb protected. So look at what Matthew 27 verse 62 says. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers? Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone setting a guard. And that large round stone was set in a kind of a track on an incline, which meant it was easy to close, but hard to open up. So whatever you do, keep him in the tomb, the grave. And as I reread that story, it occurred to me that those guards probably felt a little silly because he was dead. Like saying, I, I, I can imagine them saying, it's going to be real tough to keep a dead guy in the tomb. Um, yeah, they picked the right guys for this duty. Imagine. But Jesus was no threat to them. He had died. There was no question about that. His followers had scattered. One had betrayed him. One had denied knowing him. All of them were in hiding. So I can imagine those guards doing what you and I would do if they had picked us for that duty. Griping about pulling graveyard shift. I know, I know. <laughs> telling a few stories just to get through the night, arguing about who gets to take a nap during the night. And they had no idea the kind of wake-up call they were going to get. Look at chapter 28. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it, can you imagine the sight, an angel reclining on the stone he had pushed away? His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So the angel told the women, go tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. Stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so that people could come in and take a look. He didn't need that stone rolled away. So the angel invited the women to come in, and then on their way back to see the disciples, Jesus himself met them, the resurrected Christ met them, and gave them assurance. 
Now, I just want to th- thought, just for a moment, just kind of a side street here off of Main Street. The, wi- the testimony of women in that culture was not valued. They were not allowed to testify in court. If you were making up the story of the resurrection, would you have the first witnesses to be questionable and not valued? But what about the guards? Well, it says in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And I can't help but in my mind imagine as they, those guards are running back to the city, they're saying, man, what a way to wake up in the morning. That's the greatest wake-up call I've ever had. Because you have to understand, the last thing the religious leaders wanted to know was that Jesus was alive. I mean, that meant the Jesus movement was launching all over again. So, verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, just like they paid Judas to betray Jesus. They paid the soldiers and said, tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So between the chief priest and the elders and the soldiers, they put together a story to explain the empty tomb. And it's a story full of holes. If you're asleep, how do you know who took the body? For one thing. And to sleep on guard duty meant the death penalty for you. And if Jesus was, his body was stolen, who took it? The disciples? No, they're hiding in fear. They think they're going to be the next one that's to be crucified. Who took it? The chief priest? All they had to do to stop the Jesus movement was bring the body back and to show it. But deep down, the guards knew the truth. They knew. They were eyewitnesses to the greatest miracle in the history of the world, the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God from the dead. They were there when it happened. And that resurrection confronted them with what I call the spiritual facts of life. That the God who created this universe entered this planet as a baby, grew up, lived a perfect life, loved people all around him, was nailed to a cross as a sin sacrifice so that guilty people like me and like you could have a new life. If we repent of our sins, we will be forgiven. We entrust our life to him. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the God-man, the only way to the Father. It proves that he conquered the two greatest enemies that we have, sin and death. The resurrection demonstrates we are so wicked He had to die on a cross. And we are so loved that he willingly chose to die. And because he's alive today, he can be a companion. He can be a friend. He can give assurance. He can give guidance to people who follow him. And because of the resurrection, people can actually be born again, have a new life. And nothing is impossible. But the guards preferred to spread a fabrication rather than admit the truth. I don't know how they could do it. Because they knew the truth. They saw it. The Bible teaches that the risen Christ is still issuing personal wake-up calls to people today. People just like you and me. And he doesn't have to. He gave us the Bible. His very word, the the, the record of the life and the deeds and the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But God in grace does what he doesn't have to do. 
He chooses to give personal wake-up calls to people. Now, to the guards, it was the stone being rolled away and the angel sitting there. To you and to me, he may use a variety of methods. And let me just mention four ways that Jesus today, the risen Christ, gives wake-up calls to people. First of all, to people outside the family of God, people who ignore him or people who have been burned by church or people who are actually in rebellion against him. And he gives personal wake-up calls in one of four ways that come to my mind. One is this, what I call the inner call. And I'll bet everybody in this room can relate to what I'm saying. It's a kind of a restlessness that you get in the middle of the night or during the day and you find yourself troubled and uneasy and it's hard to pin it down. And you ask questions like this, what's really going on in my life these days? I mean, am I on the right track? Did I miss the boat somewhere? Did I take a wrong turn somewhere? Or I wonder what's really important. I mean, I'm making money, I'm paying the rent, the mortgage, but I'm raising my kids, but is this all there is? Or are my relationships what they should be? I mean, why am I feeling so bad when things right now seem to be going good? Or we think about the future and we say, am I going to be doing this for the next 10 years? Why do I feel like I'm on a treadmill, just running hard, getting nowhere? Or I just wonder if there's something different. Any of you ever feel that way? That is the risen Christ whispering a wake-up call to you. Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that God has planted eternity in our hearts. And Jesus himself said, no man can come to the Father No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father is drawing you to himself through that sense of restlessness. He's vying for your attention. He said, come to me. 1,600 years ago, 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless. You've made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So sometimes the risen Christ whispers to us, Sometimes he shouts to us in a crisis, maybe in the middle of a crushing disappointment or a financial setback in life or an illness or an accident or the death of someone that you love. When life just kind of caves in and our defenses go down a little bit and our pride goes down a little bit and we're a little more open and a little more humble and the risen Christ is saying, wake up, wake up. You know, over the years, I've asked people who visited church for the first time, why did why'd you come today? And sometimes people will say, well, I've never really been interested in religion until my wife left me. Or I'm not the religious type, but I got, I got a little problem. Well, I'll tell you the truth, my whole world is going down the chute right now. I thought maybe God could help. Or people would say, my, my son's in the wrong crowd. And God is using a crisis to give a wake-up call. In Acts 16... There's this wonderful story of a jailer. An earthquake takes place. The apostle Paul and his friend Silas are there. The jailer knows if any of the prisoners escape that he himself will pay for it with his life. And he finds they're all there. He comes to the apostle Paul, gets down on his knees and says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul introduces him to Jesus Christ. And that man bowed the knee to Christ. It took a crisis for that to happen. And I'll just bet a good number of folks in this room have been jolted by some kind of crisis. You ever wonder why? Why would God permit what happened to happen? 
And I suggest God's using a crisis as a personal wake-up call because you're a little more humble now. You're a little more open now. And the risen Christ is saying, you need a friend. My arms are wide open to you. I'll be here for you. Come on, wake, wake up, wake up. Several years ago, a woman came by my office and she explained, I'm not in the habit of talking to ministers, but I'm in this 12-step group and they say that I got to do this higher power business. And she told me about pain in her life. She told me about losing her marriage, losing two kids, losing her job, losing her self-respect and having to come to the place where she admitted my life is unmanageable and I cannot fix it. And we talked about Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. And that woman bowed her knee to Christ and said these words, Jesus Christ, I have needed you a long time. I just wouldn't admit it until now. But it took a crisis. That's amazing. The God who created the universe has every right to reject us when we have called him our last resort. But in kindness, he does not and receives us. So the Lord may use, he may use um, a crisis. He may use what we call the inner call. He may put a Christian in your life, strategically place a Christian who sends you an alarm. Acts 8 talks about a, a, an official from Ethiopia who's on this pilgrimage and he's sitting in his chariot and is reading a portion of the Old Testament and Philip, a Christian, gets up in the chariot, hitchhikes a ride and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, really, I, I don't. And Philip helped him understand the difference between religion and Christianity. Do you know the difference between religion and Christianity? Religion is spelled D-O. Religion is about all that you have to do to find acceptance with God, keeping the tenets of your faith, being kind to people, going to church, giving money. The problem is you never know when you've done enough. I mean, how, and if you make a mistake, do you have to start over? How do you know when you've done enough to gain acceptance with God? Well, religion says it's all about what you do. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E what Christ himself has done in our place. And that's what Philip explained to this man, how Jesus Christ earned our acceptance with God by what he did. And it was sufficient to please the Father because Jesus was raised from the dead, demonstrating that forgiveness had been accomplished for anyone who will turn to him. And that man said, I, I believe, hey, there's some water. Can I be baptized? And Philip said, are you sure you've committed your life to Christ? And the man said, yes. And they got down, went into the water and were baptized. And so at the end of this service, we're going to baptize people who have done the same thing that that man did 2,000 years ago. This is a story from one of my friends, a guy by the name of Brian. He wrote this to me. I had just begun dating a girl. I remember having a fight with her right before I left for a bachelor party in Panama City. She chased me out of her apartment trying to give me a Bible, and I told her I didn't need a Bible. I wanted to be with someone who put me first and not God. That woman prayed and fasted that whole weekend. I was in Florida. She sought godly counsel if we should continue to date. God answered every prayer she prayed that week in, that I was in Florida, and then some. I had a miserable time. <laughs> When I returned, I told her I never knew anyone with that kind of faith. 
And I said, I wanted to learn more. And she continued to date me and put some boundaries on our relationship. I began attending church with her every Sunday. Additionally, some of her guy friends invited me to join their small group. They sought me out with intentionality. They discipled me. And it was at that church that I heard the good news for the very first time. And I repented of my sin and placed my faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That woman quickly became my best friend. And later she became my wife. These relationships were instrumental in my salvation. Sam, God uses people who are faithful to disciple and lead people to Christ. Has God put a Christian in your life? So he will use the, an inner call. He will use a crisis. He'll put another Christian in your life. And sometimes he just uses simple kindness. He just wears people down with kindness Romans 2.4 says you do not realize that God's kindness leads you to repentance. And finally you get to the point, you say, somebody must be orchestrating all these blessings. I don't deserve it. I didn't create these blessings. And you look up and you say, this must come from God. I want to trust my life to his son, Jesus Christ. So to people outside the family of God, the risen Christ still gives wake-up calls. And maybe that's you and to people inside the family of God. He is still giving wake-up calls, using the same four kinds of wake-up calls. You wouldn't think it would have to happen. wouldn't think it would be needed. I mean, once a person comes to Christ and they know their sins are forgiven, you would think we would always be serving Him. But the Lord knows us. He knows we get distracted. He knows we begin to drift and slumber, and we lose the fire that we once had. And the Lord gives a wake-up calls. He could chastise us, but many times he will do something to wake us up, like an inner call. That's what happened to my son, my youngest son, Charlie. He was sitting in a bar at 2 o'clock in the morning at Memphis, and he turned to his friend, and he said, that's it, I have run from God long enough. Just kind of this inner restlessness. Or the Lord may use a crisis, and that's my story. I became a Christ follower when I was 12 years old. And I was on fire, and I never intended for that fire uh, to go out. I wanted my life to Christ, for, to, to matter for Christ. And as a high school senior, I fell in love with a woman, a girl, and I just became distracted. I didn't mean for it to happen, but she became the most important thing in my life. She actually took the place that Christ is only Christ is worthy of until God slipped from the highest place and she rose to the highest affections. And this kind of thing happens. It could be a job, it could be a hobby, it could be your family, it could be a home, some other interest. But something or something else, someone or something else takes the place of Jesus as the very center of your life. You never intended it to happen, but it happens. Second semester of college, she said, this relationship is not working. She broke it off, gave me a ring, gave me her pictures. I was devastated. My world just kind of crashed. Three days later, I am driving back to college, and I turn on the radio, and this old country song was playing, There Goes My Reason for Living. There Goes My Everything. I said, That's right, there she goes. <laughs> and I had this first-class, black-tie, invitation-only pity party right there in the car. God was issuing a wake-up call to me. He was saying, no person should be your reason for living. No person should occupy that position in your life. Not money, not possessions, not comfort, not a job, 
not pleasure, not some position. There's only one thing worthy of having that place in your life, and that is Jesus Christ. So by grace, I worked through that crisis and then ended up meeting my wife. Second best thing that's ever happened in my life, first was coming to know Jesus. And maybe some of you have just lost your fire. You were once so grateful, but where are you now? Anyone here going through the motions? Anyone here? And God is performing a kind of a wake-up call. God's doing surgery to remove whatever it was that had become too important to you. And you want to say this morning to Jesus, on Easter 2022, I, I'm off track. I got off track. I'm sorry. I want you to be my reason for living. Sometimes he will use a, another Christian, a friend, a coach, a teacher, a pastor, a parent, co-worker. Ruthie and I went to a, basketball, a football game and uh, got to talking to the guy sitting right in front of me, a 26-year-old, told me he was the son of a pastor, said he was a casual Christian until one of his friends died in a terrible automobile accident. And he turned to me and he said, I, I do, I'm tired of being the cause of some of my friends rejecting Christ and I want to influence my, people, my friends toward Christ. And he will use another Christian in your life or he may just use kindness. King David once said, how can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? So sometimes the Lord will awaken slumbering Christians through unexpected blessings, through answered prayer, and we end up just being broken by kindness. Lord, I'm waking up. I'm sorry. I, I drifted. You've been so good to me. And here's the truth, friends. God has been very good to many of us. He has been very kind to us. Some of us haven't had a crisis in ages. Things are going so well. That's his kindness to us. So if you're a believer, Wake up. You have the Holy Spirit. You have eternal life. Ask God to once again set your life on fire for Him. Just be grateful you're talking to a living Savior. So whether you're inside or outside the family of God, there's one thing for certain. You matter to God. You matter to the point that He gave His Son to die, crucified as a criminal, and rise from the dead, and he's reaching out to you this morning, whether you're inside or outside the family of God. And maybe you've been to church and you're not quite sure, how do you do this? I mean, what do I do to, to, to accept the resurrection, the risen Christ in my life? What do I do? The Bible says there are two things, repentance and faith. Repentance means you turn the control of your life over to him. You turn the control of your life over to him. You surrender your life to him. Faith means that you reach out to Jesus and say, I receive the gift of your life. I take it as mine. And maybe someone would like to do that right now. So let's pray together. Shall we pray? Lord, on this Easter Sunday morning, you are drawing people to yourself. So give us the courage and humility to respond. Those who are outside the family of God or they're not sure they're in the family of God, would you help them right now to surrender their life to you and to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord? And those who are inside the family of God, would you set us afire for you? 
Lord, I pray that you would do this for the glory of your Son, your risen Son. Pray in his name. Amen. So how do you, how do you express your faith like that? Well, the Bible says the first way that you do it is through baptism. Baptism is just kind of a declaration that Christ died for me, it rose for me, and I believe it, and I've received him into my life. It doesn't mean you're a perfect Christian by any means. It means you're just kind of starting. And so we're going to baptize a number of people. If you're going to be baptized, would you come stand on the stage with me? And let's just kind of form a line right here. All of you who are going to be baptized, if you would just come to the stage, stand here.